0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. My guest today is going to talk to me about her experience shifting the conversation on two major and important climate interventions. First, we'll discuss her experience working with the Department of Energy to help facilitate a major shift in mandate for what was the Office of Fossil Energy and became the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management. We'll also talk about some of the key initiatives that she helped drive that have been foundational to much of the policy progress we've seen in carbon removal today. Second, she is launching an exciting new NGO that proposes a major shift in how we advance deliberations on a contentious topic that is often wrongly conflated with carbon removal and that's solar geoengineering. Let me be clear. The new organization is not necessarily advocating for solar geoengineering, but instead it calls for a more inclusive conversation about what future, if any, this nascent field should have in climate action. And while I strongly believe, as does my guest, that carbon removal and solar geoengineering belong in two very different categories of climate interventions, there's an important overlapping dynamic. I have found that perspectives from so many groups, from indigenous groups here in North America to communities across the global south are often left out of conversations about the role, purpose, and future of carbon removal. Part of the work I'm embarking on with Carbon Removal Canada, and just recently announced as a policy fellow with Elemental Accelerator, will be focused on helping to include these voices to shape equitable carbon removal policies. I'm excited about this conversation because my guest's experience advancing equity and inclusion throughout her career in these emerging and sometimes murky fields of climate change offers a lot of lessons in building the carbon removal industry that we actually want. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at carboncurve.substack.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me a note at Naim at carboncurve.com. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hi everyone, today's guest is Dr. Shuchi Talati. Dr. Talati is a solar geoengineering governance expert working on building just and inclusive decision-making processes through the formation of a new nonprofit organization that I'm excited to learn more about today. She's also a senior visiting scholar at Carbon 180, where she's focusing on how to build just and sustainable carbon removal at scale. She most recently served as presidential appointee in the Biden-Harris administration as chief of staff of the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management. At the U.S. Department of Energy. She's also worked for multiple nonprofits as well as in the U.S. Senate. Dr. Talati earned a B.S. in Environmental Engineering from Northwestern University, an M.A. in Climate and Society from Columbia University, and a Ph.D. from Carnegie Mellon in Engineering and Public Policy. Shuchi, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: We've had a chance to work together in the past and have had a chance to follow your work for a long time now. And you've been really deeply engaged in both the carbon removal and solar radiation management policy spaces over the course of your career. What led you to this work? And when did you first get interested in?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I first learned about these spaces during my master's degree almost 14 years ago now, which is an absurdly long time ago. Now. And it was entirely new to me. I had never heard of these these types of technologies, these types of approaches. So I listened to some TED Talks. I, I read some papers. It was, it was introduced to the Freakonomics, the book for the first time. And I was hooked. I mean, these spaces were fascinating, but at the same time, were considered very fringe and getting little to no attention. The way people responded to them, if you said you were interested, was often books of confusion or concern. From my perspective, they were so interesting and potentially incredibly important to how we address climate change. And I think over the last few years, just watching how the kind of perception and acceptance of CDR as something legitimate has been nothing short of shocking. I think when I first learned about these spaces, CDR was considered kind of under the same frame of solar geoengineering as this thing that we might need, but that no one really wants to talk about that we should really only focus on mitigation technologies and adaptation, but that has completely shifted. And CDR is now essentially mainstream in the climate space in that we all know that it has to be part of the climate response portfolio. And you know, by no means does it take over emissions reduction or adaptation at all, but it, it does deserve focused consideration on making sure that we build these technologies well and in a just way, but that we will need them to reach our climate targets and potentially to get to net negative emissions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about carbon removal becoming mainstream, we've seen the Department of Energy uh, pick up this mantle. And so maybe we can shift to that in your capacity, serving as chief of staff in the Department of Energy's Office of Fossil Energy, when the name was changed to the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management a name change in and of itself isn't exactly earth shattering. But I think in this case, it truly marked a restructuring of the office itself, a transition of its focus and its function and a shift in US policies and priorities at large. Can you describe what it was like to be part of that moment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This was such an important thing that we got the opportunity to do. And so, you know, as you said at the time, chief of staff of the Office of Fossil Energy, and Dr. Jen Wilcox was the acting assistant secretary. We came in on day one really thinking about how this office fits into the administration's climate goals, how we think about environmental and climate justice, and how this office fits into that structure. And so we were really determined to make the office name more related to the work that it was doing and with the goals that we thought it should have. Carbon management has been something that the Office of Fossil Energy has been focused on for at least a decade, if not more. And so really thinking about not just what this office should be doing, but what it's already kind of building into. At the same time, we really wanted to think about how the framework of decarbonization and the way we think about energy production and consumption has shifted so dramatically and how we fit that into this office and that kind of changing landscape. We also really wanted to think about the mission of the office and how this administration might look at that differently. And so the Office of Fossil Energy's mission when we came in was very focused on energy independence, energy security, a very kind of America first mentality, energy dominance was a word that was in the mission. And so that's something that we wanted to really take a hard look at and to say, this is really not how we want to think about Fossil energy anymore. We really want to think about how fossil energy fits into the framework of addressing climate change as fast as possible in the best possible way, how it fits into environmental justice considerations, how it fits into the changing labor space, and how we think about how fossil energy exists in the international space. So, alongside the name change, we also changed the mission of the office, which I'm deeply proud of. I think that's such an important thing to not just mark a shift in how we're perceived internally in DOE and externally, but also in the work that we are actually doing to say, this is the framework under which we are now functioning. At the same time, we reorganized the office itself. Originally, under the Office of Fossil Energy, there was the Office of Clean Coal and Carbon Management and the Office of Oil and Natural Gas. And so we shifted that. So we changed into the Office of Carbon Management. And the Office of Resource Sustainability, because we really wanted to focus on not how do we extract, but if we are extracting, how do we do so in a way that minimizes environmental impacts? So I'm incredibly proud of that. And I really hope that this is a mantle under which the office continues to function.
0: And just thinking about that massive shift, can you say a little bit about any kind of resistance you experienced in trying to make that happen?
1: So, you know, within the office, we really didn't experience that much resistance. You know, I think people were just really excited to think about how this works fits into the broader decarbonization and climate change framework. We did encounter a lot of bureaucratic hurdles. And I think that honestly was the hardest part. OE is a very big agency, has a lot of politics surrounding what we do and how it's perceived. And so I think the bureaucracy and the politics of it were the really big hurdles, but we were able to move past them. And I think we got to a place where not the office name change was accepted and implemented.
0: One really landmark initiative that stood out to me while you were at DOE was the carbon negative shot as part of the larger energy earth shots initiative, which had this goal of removing CO2 and storing it away at gigaton scale for a target of less than $100 a ton. Can you tell us more about this initiative and what it was like helping to get it off the ground and where it's going today?
1: This was such an exciting time in DOA. So it was the first year in this administration and also the first time we had clear support for CDR in the federal government, right? So when this initiative launched, it was the first major federal CDR effort. And that in itself was such an important thing to us to make sure that we were shaping this in the best possible way. And we knew that this earthshot would really serve as a framework for how the agency and federal government writ large we're going to be thinking about CDR implementation. When we were putting the EarthShot together, I think we really wanted to make sure that the technological goals were clear, were feasible, but also thinking about how we make the goals applicable across a very diverse CDR space, which is very challenging. I'm sure your listeners know that CDR is such a diverse area in itself and really thinking about how these things can be comparable, and what are those facets that we have to make sure that we're integrating. And so we wanted to make sure that justice considerations were part of this, public engagement considerations, thinking about labor considerations, and then finally making sure that this was something that was understandable. I think public communication and how people understand this type of work is so important to making sure that it can be understood and potentially achieved. And that perception of success too is also so important to people thinking about how CDR can move past these early stages to being at scale. And moving past the space I think is going to be a huge challenge for CDR when we think about how scaling might happen, where it might happen, how people interact with these technologies and different approaches. And I think it's going to be a space that becomes a much bigger part of how people understand climate change technology.
0: That is a huge impact for a very new initiative to potentially have. So that's great for CDR, but I think it's such a great point around how groundbreaking it was to have CDR officially kind of recognized through this program within the U.S. government. And there were similar programs like the Mission Innovation Effort. Can you say anything about some of these other efforts that have been going on that were also designed to help boost support for carbon removal from within the U.S. government and with other trading partners and allies?
1: Mission Innovation was launched actually around the same time as the earth shot, as the carbon negative shot, and kind of was this signal happening at the same time that not only are we interested in domestic growth around CDR, but that we want to build international partnerships. And I think it was so important that these happen together because international collaboration and ensuring that we are creating international governance frameworks and to be so critical for CDR to succeed at scale. This was a mission that was built in partnership with Canada and Saudi Arabia and other countries to think about how we build a better research agenda internationally. And I hope that as this mission continues, it starts to move past early stage R&B into thinking about demonstrations and thinking about how land use changes are happening in different places, how we think through larger governance frameworks for making those decisions, who's involved in those decisions. And I'm so glad that this space exists so early on as an international platform for early CDR work. And I will say too, as we start moving past that in time, is when the hubs came into play. When the Earthshot came, when the mission innovation was announced, the infrastructure bill hadn't passed yet. And so the Jack Hub didn't exist yet. We didn't have IRA yet. These really were the kind of institutions and kind of policies that we were leaning on to think about how we wanted to move CDR deployment forward. Obviously, I'm incredibly grateful to have these bills passed now to think about how we now move the carbon negative shot and mission innovation into bigger spaces. But I just want to emphasize how important these initiatives were when they were announced because we didn't have these larger platforms to engage with CDR on yet.
0: They raised the profile of CDR in a way that helped make CDR integral as part of the Infrastructure Act, as well as the IRA and and some of these other efforts more recently. Since we've had a chance to work together and I first got to know you while you were in a different role at Carbon 180, I've always been really impressed with how focused you've been on ensuring that equity and justice considerations are integral in how we think about carbon removal. And typically, these are the sorts of things that have been ignored when we think about deploying fossil fuel projects or major carbon capture projects. And curious how you were able to function within an existing bureaucracy and fold in this equity and justice consideration into the work at DOE and what changes were made to accommodate this new framing?
1: It was an interesting challenge, but also very supported in different ways. When I came into DOE, there was a lot of support from the administration to make sure justice was a core part of how we were thinking about deployment and demonstration and how we were implementing decriminalization. And so Shalanda Baker and Tony Reims, who are leaders in this space, came into the administration. They really worked to rebuild the office that they're in to make it so justice centric, and to make sure that they are a pillar where that work happens in the agency. At the same time, a lot of the program offices have started to think about this space, but weren't really supported in the previous administration. And for the office of energy, wasn't really something that they were thinking about in terms of how they were doing their work. And so I was really excited to come into the office of fossil energy to think about how that might shift, and my expertise was not in fossil energy. It's largely been in carbon dioxide removal around more emerging carbon management technologies, how they fit into policies, but not really around kind of how these technologies have been built, how historical extraction has gone. And so these were the things that I had to learn and to think about how we might make changes in terms of historical injustices versus planning for new things that might get built. How do we prevent CDR from exacerbating those injustices. And how do we actually use CDR as a tool to build better just outcomes? And how can we start implementing those types of tenants, on good policy and good governance where we can? Um and you know, while I was there, Justice 40 also became the law of the land, if you will. That really became the way we started planning around all of our work and was such an amazing tool to make sure that it wasn't just People asking to make sure these things were considered, but that we were required to. And so, really, force so many new people into this space, around how they're thinking about calculating benefits, how we're thinking about defining what a disadvantaged community is, and that work continues. Right, that is not easy work to do. It is kind of necessarily slow. And as you start thinking about building public engagement for the debt hubs or for CCF demonstrations, we have to really think about where those communities are and meet them there. We can't just go in with an assumption of knowledge. We can't go in with an assumption or driving towards acceptance. We have to really think about how we build true partnerships and co-create these types of technologies. How do we build new types of ownership structures that aren't vested in the private sector like we have in the fossil fuel industry? And I think that was so important to me to really think about How do we completely shift this space, given the opportunity we have, to build an entirely new industry? How do we define CDR as a completely different space? And I think that's something that CDR is still deeply struggling with and that we're going to have to continue to work on. But I'm very hopeful that that's going to be a huge priority for people who are coming into this space.
0: That resonates so much with me because I think you're so right about how we have an opportunity to define carbon removal in a way that is very distinct from other industries where there might be some shared technical knowledge or shared infrastructure potentially in some ways. But I think with carbon removal and building out this massive new industry that needs to be created, there's an opportunity to do something entirely different. In order for that to work, there needs to be different governance structures and ways that we approach this work than we've seen in other industries. And so as we take a step back from your perch at DOE and now as a senior visiting scholar at Carbon 180, what are you seeing as some of the major bottlenecks in carbon removal deployment at large? And can you give us a sense from within federal agency operations as well?
1: Something that I've been noticing over the last few years, but especially over the last year, as we're seeing so much money pour into the space that we're seeing exponential growth in innovation and entrepreneurship and technology. And that's fantastic. But what I'm really concerned about is policy and governance not growing at the same rate. We really haven't had that many new entrants into CDR governance policy. We haven't really been able to build that type of expertise in ways that can keep up with how innovation is moving. I'm really concerned that without that space growing at the pace that it needs to, in a good way, in a responsible way, We won't necessarily be able to build CDR in the best way possible because people who are focused on governance and policy aren't really the ones who build the guardrail to prevent it from going into the spaces that we're concerned about. And at the same time, build things like public engagement and build things like capacity building and really think about these considerations that aren't necessarily on the mind or the expertise of the private sector. And so I'm really worried that's a bottleneck that's coming that we haven't really thought critically about yet. I hope that we start seeing a lot more entrance into CDR policy really quickly. I think this is probably one of the fastest growing spaces in climate change technology right now. And I hope we start seeing a lot more people interested in engaging in that space. But I am concerned because that's how we prevent potentially bad versions of CDR that so many events are concerned about. I would say another thing that I think will be a bottleneck and is a bottleneck right now too is is the lack of understanding of what CDR is. It is very, very new. I think we constantly see this kind of confusion of point source carbon capture mixed up with CDR and it's just going to take time. I think it's going to take a lot more efforts to make sure that this knowledge is readily available, but also trying to be dispersed and that's slow and that's not something that necessarily can be done overnight but i hope that that's something that people start focusing on because if we don't try and start building that understanding in a more widespread way i think that's going to continue to be a bottleneck in terms of how people perceive this space and then how they may or may not support it and then i would say honestly from a doe perspective is hiring i really think from a fascination c perspective we need so many more people working on this topic and across agencies, at, at EPA, arrived as well permitting, interior to think about how CDR intersects with federal land, but we don't have that staff right now and hiring the federal government is so bureaucratic, it is so slow, and I'm really concerned that that's going to be a huge bottleneck to get these projects off the ground. And that brings me to my last one, which is storage technologically it's a bottleneck because it's not something we've done very much and we still have a lot of learning to do. But from a regulatory perspective, permitting is a huge bottleneck for getting storage off the ground. And that's not to say that I think permitting should happen extremely fast, but it does need to happen faster in ways that are done responsibly with public engagement in places where there's support for those projects. But if we don't start building those structures around governance and regulation done in good ways, I think we're going to see a huge slowdown of actual carbon removal because DAC on its own is not carbon removal. It has to be connected to storage. And that's really the only way we're going to see successful outcomes.
0: Yeah, it just feels like the market itself in carbon removal is growing so rapidly. We're seeing all of these new entrants, we're seeing new private investment. And all the supporting pieces, the ecosystem around carbon removal is just not growing fast enough to meet the rate of change that we're seeing in in the actual technological advancement, in the new startups that are are coming on board, and the new kind of corporate buying that's happening. So it feels very mismatched. And there's definitely a lot of areas for catching up to be done. What other things that you worked on within the DOE that you are really excited about? And even outside of the DOE, when you look internationally, are there carbon removal policies that you're intrigued by or have some concerns about?
1: At DOE, you know, I think I talked about all the stuff I was most excited by, but I did get to work on the initial part of the DAC hubs, which was and is and will be landmark legislation in CDR. I was able to kind of think about how we define the space, you know, what are hubs, which is still a question to me, quite, <laughs> how we define DAC and how we define what the goals really are in the legislation versus what we want the goals to be. A million tons of capture is out a million tons of removal. And for me, removal is the true goal here. And so I'm really thinking about the early questions in shaping how the DACAMS funding will be built. And so I was so grateful to get to work on that. And I am happy to see so many of my colleagues that I trust that are such movers and shakers in CDR to be at... DOE and FECM to continue to shape that work. Um, I will say, though, I am worried about how politics will intersect with this. The dot-coms are a long-term policy. Before we see something being built, it will, at the earliest, probably be late 2024 or early 2025, just after the election. And given the political volatility in the United States, I'm really worried what a shift in administration might look like for implementation of the datcoms. Because these hubs will set the tone for the CDR industry in the United States. I think they'll set the tone internationally. And the way they're built will create a model for how CDR then gets built. And so while I'm incredibly excited to see this get off the ground, I'm also really worried, which is another, I need a lot more policy and governance people to be on the ground in this space. Because even if, The administration might shift. We also can function in civil society as ways to build accountability around CDR. It's not just being in the government to shape this work. It's being outside of it to make sure that we're building the mechanisms to make sure that this is done well. And so civil society is such an important space for CDR as we start to see it grow and as we start seeing politics start to intertwine really deeply with this space. It's going to
0: be... Interesting to see what kind of political durability a lot of the policies that have been developed are actually going to have as we see future changes in administration, whether that's in 2024 or beyond. Carbon removal is a big project. It's a marathon and it needs a pretty steady level of growing political support in order to be successful and a higher degree of predictability than our current political system obviously provides. But let's pivot to your work in solar radiation management. I'm really excited to hear more about this, and I want to hear more about what you've been working on in this space recently.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. So I've spent the last 10 months building a new organization around solar geoengineering and its intersections with justice and governance. And so I'm so excited to be able to launch this work officially very recently. And so it's going to be a new nonprofit organization called the Alliance for Just Deliberation on Solar Geoengineering or DSG for short. I recognize that's a very long name, but I actually think it's really important to be very clear about what this organization is focused on. Solar geoengineering has been such a controversial space. There's been so much tension around really deep questions around whether or not we should even be engaging with this topic. And so I wanted to be very clear that my goal and my mission with this organization is to work towards just and inclusive deliberation about both research and potential deployment of solar geoengineering. And so I'm more than happy to talk about the intricacies of this work and, and why I'm doing it, but to step back a little more talk about what solar geoengineering is, just so we're all on the same page. Solar geoengineering refers to approaches that reflect sunlight to cool the planet. I'm focused specifically on large-scale interventions. And so thinking about things like stratospheric aerosol injection, And rain cloud brightening. And so stratospheric aerosol injection refers to aerosols in the upper layer of the atmosphere or the stratosphere, which reflects sunlight at that level and then cools the planet. Um, The reason we know that this might work is because of large volcanic eruptions. Most recently, Mount Pinatubo in 1991 put so much sulfur into the stratosphere that it actually cooled the planet by over half a degree Celsius for over a year. So we know that these things could potentially work, but the questions really remain around kind of how it might impact other types of systems in weather and climate, like precipitation, how it might impact different regions in different ways. Impacts will be very heterogeneous across different places. And what other uncertainties there are that we don't even know about yet. There are really critical questions around whether or not this might deter efforts in other areas of climate change. There are inherent concerns about geopolitics. Different types of climate will necessarily mean different outcomes for different places and so there are so many triggers around that that I can't even begin to describe how geopolitics and solar changing will intersect but at the same time one of the reasons this is such an imminent concern is because climate impacts are increasing regardless of if we meet our net zero emissions goals by 2050 regardless of even if we met them tomorrow Impacts will continue, at least for the next several decades, if not more, and they will continue to worsen. And as we start thinking about how to kind of ramp up mitigation as fast as possible, we're not thinking about impacts. In the landmark pieces of climate legislation that passed IRA, IIJA, where is adaptation? Where is the money going to that space? There really isn't any. And if you look at that domestically and then think about the fact that that money is not existing internationally, I'm so, so concerned about how climate vulnerable communities, countries, regions are really going to be able to cope with the impacts that are coming. And so when we think about solar geoengineering, by no means is it a silver bullet to anything. It is not meant to be a solution to climate change, it cannot address any types of emissions, and it was never meant to. From my perspective, solar geoengineering is a mechanism that could potentially address some impacts, not even all impacts. And so how do we think about that as a tool in the larger climate response portfolio? And it's not that solar geoengineering may or may not exist. It's solar geoengineering in the context of everything else that we do, in the context of massive CDR at scale and the context of mitigation adaptation and in the context of how do we actually think about how to limit human suffering over the next several decades. And I don't think we're thinking about that enough. And all of that is not to say that I am advocating for the use of solar geoengineering or not. What I'm advocating for is better process on how to talk about this and how to make decisions around it. Right now, solar geoengineering has been extremely focused on the global North. All the people who are very loud about this topic are almost entirely in the global north, and that's not okay. And even worse than that, I think, is that a lot of these actors are speaking on behalf of the global south. And so what my effort is really trying to think about is how do we build knowledge and capacity across climate vulnerable countries and communities to engage in this topic, to engage in decision-making around this topic, and how do we really shift the solar engineering field to be more justice-centric, to really think about the core reasons why we all work in this field, which is to limit climate change impacts and to eliminate them, hopefully, in the long term. And how do we actually make sure that the way we make decisions is done in a way that doesn't follow, from my opinion, the very colonialistic infrastructure around climate change decision making that has happened in the past?
0: That last point in particular is really, really powerful to me because in my previous career working in international development, there's a really good intention in that space of trying to help people in the global South, but it has those elements of that colonial past within it and how we try to solve this problem. And it's important that as we address challenges relating to climate change, SRM or otherwise, that we include people in the discussion who are going to feel the impact of climate change more steeply than folks who maybe have the privilege and the ability in the global north to talk about what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, and gatekeeping potential different methods to addressing climate change. It just seems like the conversation is happening where the most important people are not at the table. And so wherever that conversation leads or whatever needs to be done around SRM, it feels like the process to date doesn't feel particularly inclusive. It seems like such an important cause to take on. I hope funders are listening to this conversation because I think the approach that you're taking right Me too. now- Yeah. <laughs> well, because I think the approach that you're taking right now is filling an important gap. We're getting away from this technical conversation about should we or shouldn't we do SRM and what scales or whatever the case is and really getting back to, well, who should be having this conversation and part of these deliberations in the first place? And I think as we apply that to SRM, as you are in this work that you're leading right now, I think there's also an opportunity to take a step back and reflect on a lot of the climate measures that we're taking right now and see where we can be more inclusive across the board. I want to talk about something that kind of gets under my skin a little bit, and that's having this discussion about interventions like SRM alongside carbon removal. I still hear people talking about these things as the same thing. Can you help explain why SRM is different and why it's important to differentiate solar geoengineering broadly from current efforts at carbon removal?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're just totally different things. And I I understand how they kind of came up under this umbrella term of geoengineering. They were both originally at the fringes of climate technology research, and they both were very emerging, very nascent, and a lot of people worked on both, including myself. But as we start thinking about how these spaces are moving in different ways, we had to take take a step back and think about these really core differences around these types of technologies. And so when you look at something like CDR, its goal is to take emissions out of the atmosphere. It's very emissions-focused. It's also very expensive. As we well know, it will take... A long time to implement this. There's a lot of infrastructure involved, there's a lot of land involved, and there will be this infrastructure around the world that will be necessary for CDR to be at scale. Solar geoengineering is the total opposite in all the ways that I just said. It requires very little infrastructure, There will be almost no land use. There are very low direct costs associated with solar geoengineering deployment at scale, direct costs, right? There could be other classes needed with engagement and monitoring, and also could be very fast, which is what really scares me. And one of the reasons I really wanted to do this work now for solar geoengineering is because I do see potential shifts in political demand happening around climate impacts very, very quickly. And whether that's in five years or 10 years, building knowledge takes a really long time. And it takes resources. It takes a really focused effort to do that in an unbiased way, to do that with an agenda that is not assigned from the global north, to do so in ways that are locally led. And I do think the same work is actually really important for CDR. I just think CDR has more time to be able to engage in this. And I hope, I really hope that someone starts picking up this type of work to build capacity around the world, around CDR. But my focus is around solar geoengineering because of the reasons I said and because of the ways different for CDR.
0: So tell us about what the mission of your organization is going to be and what your key focus areas of intervention are, are going to be as you build this out.
1: Yeah. So my mission is to work towards just and inclusive deliberation on research and potential use of solar geoengineering. And so just it goes through those terms, because I do think it's important to be on the same page around what these terms really mean. And so for me, deliberation just means anything that involving discussion and processes around decision-making, for solar engineering. Um, inclusivity, I think, is such an important term that gets thrown around a lot everywhere. And so I wanted to be very clear around defining that. And so I think inclusivity for me means improving participation for those that have been disadvantaged, Marginalized and vulnerable, and creating better opportunities like access to resources, giving them a voice, respecting their rights, and doing this in a way that is very focused on emerging technologies and solar geoengineering specifically. And then finally, I think justice demands the protection of basic rights, the fair treatment of individuals, and equal opportunity to participate in decision making. And so Solar chemistry really has to be assessed through the lens of justice, through the lens of climate justice, which is different than environmental justice. And I think it's also very important to make that differentiation very clear and really focused on listing up the most vulnerable when it comes to how we make decisions around any climate impact. And so when it comes to thinking about what this organization is actually going really to do, I think there are a few core objectives that I have and kind of the work that I want to do. And so first, my focus is really thinking about how to empower policy engagement by building pathways for civil society in areas where governance and decision-making is already happening. Like, how do you build those connections? How do you help them be part of these processes? And taking a step back from that is how do you actually build capacity for them to be prepared to engage in those spaces? And so really thinking about how do you define capacity building? How do you define Capacity building focused on governance. What does that look like in the context of solar geoengineering? What are models to implement that work? How do you build that? How do you build that in partnership with different places? How do you look at that through the lens of different types of learning and geographies? This is all like really slow, long work. And so I really want to take the time to think about how to do that in the best possible way, which has been a huge focus on how I've been thinking about this for the last 10 months. And then another piece of this too is also thinking about how we're talking about solar geoengineering writ large. How do we actually expand the narrative around solar geoengineering to be more justice-centric? And how can we use that as a way to de-risk engagement in this space for civil society? So I think one of the challenges around solar geoengineering is this tension that's really just been the way solar geoengineering has been perceived for the last two decades. And I think anytime it comes up in the context of climate policy, you always see really strong, loud opinions with very little nuance. And so I want to really think about how we create a much better conversation in ways that we're more aligned in how we think about how research might be shaped, how we think about potential deployment governance structures, and trying to be an honest broker in how information is conveyed and how we talk about this work as it continues to evolve. And so those are the core pieces of the work that I'm hoping to implement over the next few years.
0: And that is really, really important work. And like you said, it will take a long time to build those structures, but they'll be absolutely fundamental to building out whatever future solar geoengineering, SRM in particular, has in relation to addressing the climate crisis. And maybe you can share a little bit about this with our listeners some news about a company called Make Sunsets, that's pretty evident that we are really lacking adequate governance structures right now. In your mind, what does a healthy governance structure look
1: like? So I think that's a really hard question. I have an opinion of what I think good governance it is, But as we start building frameworks of governance around research, I think we need to have a lot more people involved in those discussions. So I'll say that basically. But I think when you look at something that's so extreme, like make sense, where they're trying to profit and commercialize slow geoengineering engineering when we don't even have a baseline research understanding around these approaches, that in itself is absurd. How do we not have governance to at least prevent that kind of activity? I think it's so critical and so important to make sure that we understand how slow geoengineering engineering might impact different people before we even start thinking about Like a private sector version of this. And from my perspective, I don't really think CrossFit has a place in solar geoengineering at at all. But as we start thinking about how research might move, those governance structures are really important to think about very, very early on. on. And so I'm also the co-chair of the Independent Advisory Committee to oversee one of the first proposed experiments around solar geoengineering from Harvard, And we've created a governance framework for how to consider things, and it is publicly available. And so there is, from my perspective, kind of a blatant disregard for governance structures that have been talked about that do exist, right? And the National Academies Report Around Solar Gendering that was published in 2021 also made very clear what research governance structures should look like from their perspective. So these ideas around good governance for research do exist. And they're not perfect. We will absolutely need to be iterated upon. But models for how to do this are out there. And I think it's so important for early stage research efforts to have that consistency, to know what structures are functioning under, and also to prevent the type of kind of rogue, kind of reckless work that's happening in the private sector. And it's just so concerning to me that we're seeing that type of kind of provocation so early. It's not necessarily surprising that this is happening. I think people in the solar engineering governance community have been talking about the potential for rogue action for a really long time. So that in itself isn't surprising. I think the timing of it is kind of shocking because of the nascency of the research, because we don't know really what outcomes look like. And the idea of trying to profit off of credit, quote unquote, cooling credits from deploying this work is absurd to me because the science is not there at all.
0: Yeah, it is absurd. I think that's a great way to describe it. And part of me also feels like because we've kind of obstructed efforts to just do some basic early research in this field so far, and because so few people are around the table in determining what future this this process does or does not have in addressing climate change, it seems like that almost opened up more room for rogue actors to justify doing what they're doing. Does that make sense to you? Or do you agree with that? And isn't that kind of more of a reason why getting the governance piece of all of this right, all of that has become so much more important in terms of the work that you're currently doing?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that this like taboo that's existed around sort group for so long has absolutely led to a lot more difficulty in creating better governance around, around how research happens, right? And and for me, it's, it's, you know, when we think about how research will happen, what my concern is, how do we make sure that we're building the right research questions? Are we funding the right research questions? Who's involved in making sure that, you know, different regions' perspective or the questions they might have are being considered? And these are so important to put into a broader research framework for how solar geoengineering research might proceed. And the more people you have engaging in that will just lead to much more participatory and better outcomes for a much higher diversity of input into that. And then for more legitimacy in the outcomes of the research that does happen. When you don't have more people engaged in a space, it's easy to be like, well, no one's asking for this governance. No one's asking for us to engage in this. Well, of course they're not, because. No one knows that it exists as as a space, and so that's another reason why building capacity and knowledge around this is so important to me, because we absolutely need to see how different people feel about this type of work to be able to make good decisions around it. And there's been a lot of talk around whether or not we should even be talking about solar geoengineering or engaging in it. And there was a recent non-use agreement that was published, I think, January 2022 around saying good governance isn't possible. We shouldn't engage with Zorchit trade at all. And honestly, that's a valid opinion. And and I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I think what concerns me about that is that this group of people have had the privilege of engaging with this topic before to come to that conclusion. It is really not their right to say other people don't deserve the same privilege to engage with this topic. And we don't know what conclusion they're going to come to. I think a lot of people have speculated how they think the global South might think about this topic, but the global South is also very heterogeneous. It is not this block <laughs> that's going to act in the same way. It's, people are going to have a really wide side of opinion and a huge diversity of thought around this. And I hope it's new creative thought. I know it's going to be. We're going to have so much new substantive input. And that's so valuable to not even think about it being with.
0: Absolutely. All of this work is super important. And it's really, really fascinating in terms of the governance structures here that are relevant to solar geoengineering. And if we had more time, I think we'd get into this, but there are just so many lessons that I think as we engage on carbon removal, that we can learn from this, because I think that we might've in the carbon removal world, skipped a step here in the part of the work that you're engaging right now as relates to SRM. And it'd be interesting for us to kind of take a pause and think about where are we kind of doing the same thing where the decisions around what happens around CDR are kind of decided by a smaller group of people who've had the privilege to engage around that question in a way that many others haven't. And as you mentioned earlier, because carbon removal is going to move slower potentially than something like SRM, I think we have to make the space to talk about that within the context of CDR as well. So I think there's some really valuable lessons to learn between both of these efforts, despite vast differences in their actual approach to addressing climate change really appreciate the time and i really really appreciate the work you're doing i can only wish you the absolute best in getting this new organization off the ground i fully anticipate calling you up and commiserating about what it's like to start up a new organization and the difficulties involved in that. But it sounds like you have a really clear focus and you're tackling a problem that is extremely important as we think about this really critical topic. How do people get in touch with you? How do they learn more about this new organization?
1: Yeah, so please visit our website. It's sgdeliberation.org and there's a contact page on there. I would love for people to reach out. They can also email me it's just stilani at SchiefLiberation.org as well. I'm always looking to talk to more people. That's such a focus of making sure this work is done well to build a larger community of support and to build a lot more accessibility to this topic.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Uji. I appreciate the time today.